I believe we can have healthy rivers and a healthy economy. And one of the, the big pieces that I just frankly see differently than, than my friends that, that feel like breaching is, is the answer. I work in a biological system. We as humans want to say, if I do A, B will happen. And that's simply not the reality in a biological system. Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you've heard a lot of talk about the energy side of our work. Five episodes worth of talk, to be exact. Today, we're going to explore something else near and dear to our hearts, and that's agriculture. Now, what exactly do dams and agriculture have to do with each other, you might ask? To help answer that question, our guest today is none other than Blaine Meek of AgriNorthwest. So Blaine, to lay the foundation for today's discussion, what is AgriNorthwest and what's your role there? Yeah, thanks Austin, I appreciate the opportunity. We're a large farm. Uh, the, the reason that, that I get involved and, and that, that we've got to know each other is uh, we, we pump water uh, from behind our Ice Harbor Dam on the Snake River uh, on part of our farm. And um, I've been asked in, in different ways and got involved in the, in the Snake River issues. And so I, I like to say I'm trying to represent uh, myself and my neighbors uh, that are part of the 50,000 irrigated acres uh, behind Ice Harbor Dam. Um, so uh, my background, I grew up on a, on a family farm in Southern Idaho. Um, I have my, my claim to fame is Napoleon Dynamite and I went to the same high school. Uh, so I, that's where I grew up uh, farming with my dad. And then uh, got the opportunity, uh, a reality of family farms. There was, my dad was farming with his brother, but there was 15 direct heirs uh, between those our two families. And so if I wanted to keep farming, I had to find another way to do it. And so thankfully um, I was able to, to find an opportunity to do that with, with Agri Northwest here in the Columbia Basin. And so, uh, so we aren't a family farm, but I, I do like to, to make sure everybody realizes we are a farm of families that uh, live the agriculture lifestyle and and love our love our land and love the way we're able to live and, and work the ground. So it's fair to say that you have a sort of a not just a career in agriculture but a life in agriculture and you know with that I'm sure that you've experienced and learned a lot of interesting things along the way. Do you have any interesting insights or, or experiences that you could share just kind of to start things off and uh, maybe some of the more, you know, unique aspects of having a, a life in agriculture? Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting question to think about. I, I definitely try to make sure people understand those of us in agriculture, it is a lifestyle. Um, for a lot of this, a lot of our hobbies are tied up in our job, which is which on the one hand is is great. Not everybody gets to do their hobby uh, and get paid for it, but but in a lot in a lot of aspects my, with of my job, I believe that's the case. And and then it it's it's just a a tie um, to the land, to being outside, to um, 
trying to work with mother nature uh, in a way and, and, you know, getting humbled that, that you don't have control of a lot of things. Um, and, but yet you're trying to do your best to, to con control things. And so um, maybe the, the biggest thing I like to, to think about and that matters, you know, at the end of the day, as farmers, we have to, to work with mother nature and the, and the resources we have to have a crop to sell. And, and it's pretty cool. And, and I, I will fully admit to taking great pride into growing food and, and to be, you know, when, when my crop is done and thinking about this is going to somebody's plate, this is going to a restaurant, this is, this is going to be things people eat. And, and obviously that's important to all of us. Definitely. And, and it, you know, sometimes maybe I think that people who aren't familiar with agriculture, maybe they've even, you know, never had a, a garden or anything at the very least to sort of experience that on some level, they might get this, you know, sort of misconstrued idea that somehow nature and agriculture aren't in unison at all times. And, um, you know, as I hear you describing it, it, it's definitely not the case, right? Yeah. And, you know, in, in our world today in, in popular media, a lot of times, you know, people for with different motivations try to, to scare us about what people are trying to do to our food, you know, like, like there's a boogeyman that's, that's wanting to harm, harm us in some way. And, and I always, you know, I bristle at that on the one hand, because it's, it's kind of offensive in some terms, but but those of us in agriculture, with, with rare exception, you know, you can always find somebody who's, who's doing something wrong, but with rare exception, um, I want my farm to be producing today, tomorrow, a hundred years from now. And so um, when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about environmental stewardship, uh, show me a farmer who doesn't care about those things and, and they're not going to be a farmer very long because that that is what we have to do. This, this, this land that we have to work with, um, it is, we got to come back to it, to it every year and, and ask it to, to, do, to do its work again. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, you know, obviously is a, a huge component of the work. Um, for Agri-Northwest, you guys serve Southwest Washington, and as you described it, it's a farm of families. So maybe help me understand a little bit more what what that community looks like. Um, you know, what who are the families that that make that up? Oh, that's uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I obviously there's a lot of us, and so my my first inclination is wanting to tell you about individuals, right? But that that probably doesn't work. And <laughs> You don't have enough time for me to, to go through all the names. And so um, many of us are similar to me. We grew up on family farms uh, that didn't have room for us to stay there. And so um, and so we've we've found a job in agriculture and, and are able to keep farming that way. Uh, many of us, um, uh, uh, we have a large Hispanic workforce. Um I, I go from people who are recently come to the United States to, to employees that have been with us for over 40 years and have raised their families on the farm and, and their kids are coming back and, and working. Um, one of my favorite stories to tell people is uh, one of our great long-term employees, his name's Diego. Um, 
he's been he's been with the farm. He came as a as a young man, just recently came from Mexico, uh, was moving hand lines on the farm, was his first job. And and he in his time with us, which is 43 years now, he's went from from that and worked his way up through the ranks and and got married and had a family and and is now one of our farm managers. And his son just graduated from Washington State University with his master's degree in in agronomy, which is which is cool, and now works for Lamb Weston, uh, the potato processor that buys most of our potatoes. And so um, that's that's the kind of thing that that is is not uncommon. Um, where where you know, like I I allude back to, it's a lifestyle. We we kind of have it in our blood, um, and and what what who we are is is definitely affected by by what we do that's a great story I, that's a really full uh, really cool one um and I, I think it's also important to to touch on just sheerly the the importance of agriculture not only to those communities to to the people that you're directly involved with but um whether it be Washington as a whole, or Southwest Washington, Washington as a whole, the Northwest and, and even beyond. I mean, um, just the potato crop you mentioned, for example, that goes out to a, a significant number of people and it's, you know, no small number of, of crops. Um, yeah, Austin, I, one, thing yeah. That, one thing that I like to make sure I tell people, because if you're not in agriculture, you might, many don't realize it. The Columbia Basin is an amazing region in the world for farming. Um, I've had the opportunity to farm in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. I've been in central Utah. Of course, I grew up in southern Idaho. And the Columbia Basin is so it's it's got a unique blend of a long growing season, incredibly high quality and reliable water, and then we're a, a northern, the climate, we have a, well, I'm sorry, I, I said that all, long growing season, great soil and, and reliable water that makes us uh, incredibly productive. And, and just to, you know, a few antidotes that often surprise people, we grow significantly more potatoes per acre than the state of Idaho. Um, we Washington state because of the Columbia basin is actually the highest average corn yields in the United States, higher than Illinois and Indiana and um, those Iowa, those, those states that we often uh, associate with, with those crops. And so it isn't just that, yeah, you know, there's farmers all throughout the nation and we're all, you know, obviously all farming is important and, and contributes, but um I want to make sure everyone realizes how in, incredible of a region that the Columbia Basin is and, and how unique. We're growing more things that you'll actually see on your plate than, than any other state besides uh, California. And so, you know, that, that brings up another question that I have, which is for, um, for that region, obviously there's some pretty significant things that are working in your favor in order to be able to accomplish that. What maybe are some of the specific benefits to farming in that area? And then also, you know, at the same time, are there any 
any drawbacks as well to to agriculture in the southwest Washington area? Yeah, so um, that that's a great that's a great question, Austin. And a couple of things that that initially come to mind, right? And obviously in eastern Washington, um, you know, some people say when you tell them you live in Washington, they think, oh, you love the green and the trees. Well, that's not the part of Washington I live in. <laughs> um, I live in the part where we have lots of tumbleweeds and and uh, cheatgrass. You know, so without irrigation, we are not a very productive agriculture area. Uh, very little would grow, and you can see that uh, if you drive through whatever. If it's if it's not if it's the area between the pivots, there's not much growing there. Uh, whereas the the spot where the the pivots are. Um, is of course incredibly productive. And so um, a couple things, we, we're a very sandy soil, uh, which makes root crops like potatoes, onions, carrots uh, work really well because you can, you can harvest the crop and get it separated from the dirt uh, easier than if you're in a heavier soil. Um, some would, so a lot of people don't realize, in fact, you know, uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, the dams and stuff as our conversation goes on, but um, Damnation, the uh, the show uh, where they they talk about dams, and uh, there's a part in there where they're rowing down the Snake River, and the the main narrator makes a comment about all this unsustainable farming, and uh, that that comment just really made makes me bristle, and so I can't resist you know, making this, this point, um, is irrigated farming un unsustainable, right? And if you look at it and you look at the Midwest and, and even, you know, even up in the Palouse uh, part of Washington, there's areas in our country where you get enough consistent rainfall that you can grow a crop without irrigation. But if you look at, again, the crops, the things that end up on your plate, very few of those are grown without irrigation. And there's, there's some very specific reasons for that. Uh, one is um, when you can control the water, you are much more predictable. You know, no matter how rainy a place is, they grow through drought periods, they grow through times that, that they don't get a good amount of water or they get incredible amounts of water, which is also not good for crops when you, when you get too much of a good thing. And so when we talk about sustainability, having irrigation, reliable water that you can apply on the crops as they need it, proper timing and everything is very important uh, for, for potatoes, for carrots, for onions, for, for so many of these crops that we're growing in the Northwest. And so it's a disadvantage that we don't have the rain. Um, it's a great advantage too, though. And, and one other point on that, most places that are very rainy have a lot of humidity. Humidity is more susceptible to fungal diseases. And so you take a potato or a tomato plant, when they're in a humid place, they have a lot more uh, plant health problems. In our dry, arid environment, our plants will be able to be significantly more productive because they aren't fighting off uh, some of those things, which, which is another advantage of the basin. Well, there may be some redundancy in, in where we're headed next, but it does kind of 
lead us right back to that opening question, which is where agriculture in Washington intersects with hydroelectricity and with our dams. And so maybe you can touch on how the uh, how the controlling of water um, plays into that. So because I need to irrigate, I've got to lift water out of the river and get it up to my fields. And the way I do that is with pumps that are run by electricity. So I'm, any, I'm a big electricity user, uh, as well as all my neighbors and uh, other farmers that, that need to get water onto the, onto the fields. And so um, the Northwest and its incredible renewable energy, clean power resources have been part of what has made uh, this region what it is. You know, if, if you go to Grand Coulee Dam, the, you know, kind of the, 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 big, the biggest dam that we have on, on our river system, you know, it was originally built for agriculture. Uh, they found out quickly that, wow, this energy is really good too. And, and that has ended up being the even bigger economic driver, but, but a good share of our Columbia Basin irrigated ag uh, is because of the, the Grand Coulee project and the, the associated irrigation projects with that. And so power is very important to us, affordable power uh, that, that we can, so we can get the water to our, to our crops. And so within that as well, you know, many of our members at Northwest River Partners are public power members and they serve, you know, many of them serve Southeast Washington. You know, I mean, we have members across the Northwest, but um, we do have some really strong ties over in kind of that same region that we're talking about today. So for Agri-Northwest and the community that you serve, do you have any kind of, uh, you know, good relationship going on with some of the PUDs and co-ops over in your area? A absolutely. Um, awesome. Uh, uh, you've had Rick Dunn on. Uh, Benton PUD is a, is a great partner. Uh, Columbia REA uh, out in Walla Walla is uh, a great partner. Um, so uh, definitely uh, lots of, of dependency and, and again, incredible people in those organizations that, that understand agriculture. You know, we're we're a fickle uh, power customer in the sense that we don't need much in the winter and we need a whole bunch in the middle of the summer. And so that creates some challenges in, in what they do, but, but they're great with, uh, you know, working with us and, and finding solutions so that, so that when we need water um, it's there, it, it works. Definitely. You know, one of the things, um, as you mentioned, I had Rick Dunn on from Benton PUD and we discussed a lot about grid reliability. And during that discussion, we stumbled upon something that I don't think he or I had ever really put a lot of thought or, or put a lot of discussion into, and I, I haven't really seen anywhere else. And that was the topic of how a potential blackout situation, if you had you know a particularly high risk for blackouts, could be disruptive to agriculture. And you know, as you know, and, and a lot of people know, notably, blackouts are most likely during extreme weather events like you would get during an already hot summer um, when you end up with a heat wave. So I, I do have to ask from your, uh, your point of view, 
what might a blackout look like for a farm over in that region? Yeah, this is this is a really important uh, question. Um, the a lot of the things that that we can talk about today, and you know, I've, I've got lots of statistics and stuff that we may or may not get to, but are just talking about the 50,000 acres behind Ice Harbor Dam that are uh, directly affected by, you know, the, the Lower Snake River dams. But when we talk about power and power reliability, the, the impact is much, much larger. I mean, there is over, there's about 1.4 million acres of irrigated farmland in the Columbia Basin, all of which are depending on power you know, to make it work. And so I'll, I'll tell you uh, a real, a real story um, of, you know, just two years ago, we had the big heat dome event uh, that was hard to forget. You know, we were over, we were 116 to 118 degrees for, for three straight days. And as you can imagine, the water use by the plants during that period was, was extremely high. We were you. We were pumping, tr just trying to keep the plants going. We were pumping all the water that we could, and I, I think I think you and Rick actually talked about this a little bit. There there came became some issues that we actually got a call uh, that said we we might have to shut you off as we got into that late afternoon. You know, everybody come from coming home from work, turning up the AC. Uh, surge in power um and 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 we get it right we're 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 lower on the totem pole they're going to keep the people uh the people alive and 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 we're going to get shut off faster because we're you know they can they can get a big amount of power but that that would be devastating on the crops and and i'll i'll give a a quick example in that Luckily, that didn't happen. So, so I didn't have to experience this on the full farm. But I have a pivot. It was in potatoes. That during that period of time, it had a mechanical problem. One of these uh, faults that it took a little bit longer to figure out what was wrong and to get it going again. And so it was off for about uh, eight hours during during that that three day period of time. And you could visibly see uh, those plants were were in extreme stress. Literally, you you could see burning on the edges of the the leaves, and and that that field yielded about twenty percent less than the other fields that we were able to keep the water going on. And so, you know, that's that's a small antidote, but I I think it shows if if you can't depend on the on the power working on the on the being able to pump that water uh, through the summer, the product the productivity uh, of the Columbia Basin could severely be compromised. It it's it's a really scary thing. Yeah, yeah, and you know I'll share uh, quickly a, one of my own anecdotes. Um, you know, it's been a kind of a family tradition that. I picked back up, you know, it kind of fell off a little bit and then I picked it back up in, in recent years, which is, uh, to go out into the, into the mountains here in the Northwest and, um, 
collect huckleberries and make jam every year. And I remember that year specifically, you went up there and the majority of the the plants in August, you know, they had kind of recovered, but the berry output was terrible. And the ones that were there, it, you know, it looked like there was dried fruit hanging from the plants almost everywhere you looked, especially the ones that were more in the sun as opposed to in the shade. So, um, you know, the impact of maybe just a few days of really high heat can end up, you know, having a drastic effect months down the road. And that's something I wanted to touch on with you and, um, you know, maybe ask you to clarify for people who would be listening to this and don't quite understand how that process works or, or what the, the impact really can be in that scenario, which is, um, you know, if you, if you did have the worst case scenario, right, and you lost power there and, um, you know, like the, with the potato example you provided, in the middle of summer, you don't pick back up and start over and get to produce those crops. I mean, it's, you know, it's a basically really a process of months or, you know, almost the entire year in order to get something. So if you lose it, it's just gone, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one of the jokes that we are, you know, between our, our farmers here that we talk about is, as we start in this the spring, we're out potato planting potatoes right now, and we're about to start planting corn. And and we say we have sixty tons of potential that we could grow right you know right now when we start off fresh. And throughout the year, between either our own mistakes or Mother Nature's uh, curveballs, we just keep reducing that down to whatever we end up with in the end. And so. Um, in you know we 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 work in year-long production cycles uh what i do here in april may june all you know keeps keeps going you you mess it up at any point in time and and yeah you don't you don't recover it there's no there's no redo there's no reset button i uh i teach my kids um you know, we've got a little garden, so anybody who's garden can can probably relate to this. Um, if you neglect it for a week, you go on vacation and the, the water quit working or, or you know, something else happens, uh, you're toast for that year, you know, and, and you don't get to come back. And that that is a very real thing that we're dealing with as farmers. And so if, if you took intermittent stress on plants stress on plants reduces yield reduces quality reduces productivity and and so that is that's my job as a farmer is how can i reduce stress uh, the most and there's sometimes them when the wind's blowing there's not much i can do if a hailstorm comes there's not much i can do but i can keep the water there i can keep diseases away i can keep insects away and those and those things keep that that plant going to ultimately uh, produce in a way that that feeds us all. For sure. It's funny because, you know, we've done some survey work over the years and we've talked to people out in the public and various things. And occasionally you'll hear people say, oh, well, um, I'm I'm comfortable with having a, a blackout. I'm comfortable with us not having energy for, you know, a period of a few hours or maybe, you know, over the course of a few days because, you know, ultimately, um, 
you know, they'll grab some blankets if it's cold or they'll, you know, get some cold water if it's hot or go off to the river or the lake or, you know, do whatever they're going to do. But that doesn't necessarily look the same when they go to the store in a few weeks or a few months down the road and um, suddenly the shelves are looking a little bit bare. And as we saw through the last few years with the, the pandemic situation, um, people don't particularly respond well to that. So um, it's important to keep in mind. Yeah. And, and, and if, you know, there's so many of these things that uh, y- you have to, you have to step back. If, if, and, and I think it's a, a, a frustration of all, all these important issues that, that we get narrowly focused on a single thing when in reality, uh, you know, a quote I like to use a lot, um, Andy McGuire, who's an, a Washington State University Extension agronomist that's, that's really great uh, here in the basin, he talks about, in biology, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And, and that, you know, that really applies to a, a lot of issues on the farm and, and as we talk about the river system and 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 all the things that we're doing, um, the trade-offs of, yeah, I'm okay for an hour with, you know, for a day without my air conditioning. Well, it's, it's a bigger deal than that. And, and, and you're right, four months later, I, you will notice. Definitely. So, you know, as we discuss all of this, obviously we have to bring up the conversation that is breaching the lower Snake River dams, which is where a lot of, you know, grid reliability concerns and and blackout concerns for the region get brought up. Um, And maybe, you know, you could share your perspective on on what concerns you see with the removal of those dams from uh, whether it's the transportation for the crops or the irrigation or, you know, the energy shortage side of it. I mean, I know there's a number of sort of different ways that that impacts you. It it does. And, um, you know, the the energy part of it, you've had some great guests that are explaining that well, and, and that's not my expertise. And so, you know, it, the energy matters and, and I'll just give a couple of, of quick, you know, links, I guess, of, of how that directly affects us. So I have a, a pump station on the snake river that is pumping out of Lake Sacagawea behind ice Harbor dam. And, and my neighbors have similar, similar structures. If the ice Harbor dam is, is removed or breached in any way, obviously the water level drops 80 to hundred feet, depending on which study you look at. So just, just in a practical basis, now my pumps will be sitting on dry ground and you've got to figure out a way to get the water uh, from the new river channel up to those pumps. And we'll talk about a few different ways that that's a challenge, but, but the first one is that additional lift is perpetual. So that is going to take more energy. That is, that is a reality. You're, you're going to be lifting the water more and you're going to have to build another pump structure down in the river to, to do that. And, uh, you know, I wish I could show a picture of, of the strike. This is not, this is not a small thing, you know, to, 
to irrigate 50,000 acres, you're, it's a lot of pumps. It's a lot of concrete. It's a lot of, of big infrastructure. Um, so that, that physical lift and the energy part of it matters and the affordability of those things, reliability, um, as we've been talking about really matters obviously to the farm. The second big challenge that I, I like to, to point out to people. And, and if you, if you get online, you can see some of the pictures of the drawdown in 1992 when they, they lowered little goose, I think it was. And you see all the silt behind these dams is, is a bunch of silt. And so this river channel is not the same as it was when that dam was built. Um, and if, if you look at the, uh, you know, there's other places where dams have been removed. Um, the Elwha River is one that uh, is, you can find media reports on, you know, even five years later, they're talking about the, the channel is still reforming and, and the, you know, the, it's moving. And so my irrigation system season goes from, from sometime in March until the end of October. So it's a relatively, you know, anyway, long growing season, the Columbia Basin. So it's a relatively short amount of time that, that I don't need irrigation water. And, and, and again, my neighbors, some of which are growing apples and vineyards, long, long-term crops. Um, so if, if it was removed, how do you get this infrastructure built in a three or four month period of time in a riverbed that is not stable? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how, how to answer that. In fact, I, something on an encouraging note, you know, I saw yesterday in, in a review of some of the budget proposals in Washington state, they're acknowledging that challenge and actually putting some money to, tr to try to study for answers, uh, for that, because, um, it may be years, um, certainly a, one or two years before that channel is stable enough that you can uh, get pumps down there again. And when you, for me as an annual crop person, that's devastating. But when you compare that to my neighbors, I don't have much complaint. Apple orchards, cherry orchards, vineyards, they're dead. You know, they're, they, they lose everything and, and are starting over if, if you do, you know, once you do get some things back. So those are, uh, those are two, anyway, to start with two really big impacts. Well, you know, it, it kind of makes me appreciate the discussion that we just had prior as well, because a lot of the discussion around this is that if you're going to go through with removal, then one of the solutions to some of the problems that you're bringing up, at least the, the proposed solutions is we'll make everyone whole and by making everyone whole we'll provide them with you know money to compensate for potential losses and impacts of removal but i don't know how you compensate for the lack of production um, because as you mentioned like washington producing more potatoes than idaho um, what 
you know, and, and I don't know, this might be more of a rhetorical question than anything else, but what do we do if we can't produce all of those crops and, and they're just erased from, from the marketplace? Yeah. And I've, I've thought a lot about this because, you know, because I, I want to be cred, you know, fair to both sides and, and in looking at this issue, you know, uh, I do appreciate uh, many, and I consider them friends that, that see the, these issues different than I do. Um, so I, I, this is, this is some ways that I put that. And I, I hope the, the war in Ukraine uh, maybe gave us a little window here of how one production system is a, can honestly affect the whole world, you know, when they, they couldn't get the wheat and, and some other crops out of Ukraine for a time and how, how really, I mean, that's why we're, it's affecting the price all of us are paying here in the United States. For most of us in the United States, that's an inconvenience. Unfortunately, for a lot of the rest of the world, it's, it's life or death. You know, it's, it's significantly impacting their ability to get enough food to, to, to feed the, the people in, in some nations. So, so some people might, you know, sometimes, you know, oh, it's only 50,000 acres behind the Snake River Dam. That's not that much in, in world agriculture. Well, a, a couple of, of quick statistics. I, uh, we grow enough sweet corn behind just in the 50,000 acres uh, out of Lake Sacagawea to feed 19 million people. We grow enough apples uh, in, in the area behind Lake Sacagawea to feed, feed 18 million people. We grow enough potatoes to feed over 7 million people for, for a year. And so you don't, you don't take those things out of the system without it, 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 it does matter materially to, to the amount of food. And then when you bring it back to our local community, obviously it would, it would be really devastating to, to those of us whose farms would be affected. And, and if you can't produce for, for a while um, or, or lose your orchards and whatnot, but, but when you consider the, the ripple effect that those products have through our community, so obviously you've got the, the farmers that are and the workers that are working directly on the farms, which we're talking about over 5,000 people with, with just direct employment on the farms. But then we take all those products. Um, you know, if, if anybody's driven through Pasco, uh, you, you get out there uh, on the east side of town and there's multiple sweet corn processors. There's Reeser, there's Lamb Weston, there's, you know, there's a lot of plants there. And so most of our product uh, is coming in and being put in a, a freezer bag or a, uh, is, is the majority uh, into, to so incredible amount of, of jobs around processing that food and, and getting it ready for the consumer. And then of course, all the transportation and, and many of, of our products are are ending up on a boat and going to Asia. And, and so we're a tremendous exporter um, to the world of, of agriculture products. And so, so it's, it's very real and, and is a much farther beyond uh, just the farms in my view. And, you know, just to connect some dots for repeat listeners of this podcast, people who have listened to our previous episodes. Um, one of the things that, 
Rick Dunn specifically touched on was that access to energy is directly tied to how well um, communities or, or countries are able to prosper as a whole. You know, the, the differences between, say, the first world and the third world. Um, and then when you look at what we're discussing today, sort of the the next best thing is, well, if you don't have access to that clean to to the energy and if you don't have the ability to then you know produce the food you need because you don't have that then the next best thing is to get it from someone like us who is able to produce that and then you know ship it and transport it and sell it to those other places of the world so um it's you know certainly not a, a good situation if you look at places that now don't have the the option to buy it and they don't have the option to grow it. Um, but aside from that kind of offshoot tangent, um, you know, one of the, the things that I really wanted to touch on today is that, you know, you were included as one of the, the stakeholders who has spoken on, say, Governor Inslee's Lower Snake River Dam replacement discussion in 2020. And, you know, one of the reasons that um, both Kurt and I were really excited to get to have a discussion with you on the podcast is because we were so impressed by your presentation and some of the points that you've shared. So um, are there some specific highlights from that that maybe you could share with our audience today and some specific things that you could take us through? Well, I, I have, you know, it's one of these things you, I got in this to be a farmer, not a, <laughs> uh, not an advocate. And that's, that's still my prayer. But, but these things matter and, and you learn, you know, if, if, you, if you don't get involved, then uh, then you don't, you know, your view isn't, isn't presented. And so a, a couple of things that, that I like to share that I hope people will think about. And, and before I say this, I, I want to make a comment. I was, I have, I have been on a few different things and, and I got a question one time when I was on a, a podcast with American Rivers and somebody said, so do you care about salmon? Um and, and that kind of took me off guard, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, when I step back, I can understand that, um, you know, from their point of view, if I was, if I was, you know, trying to advocate for, hey, these, these dams should say put, maybe I didn't care about salmon. And, and I want to assure everyone, that's absolutely not how I look at it. Um, I believe we can have healthy rivers and a healthy economy to, you know, my friend Alex McGregor, I'm stealing that 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 line from him but um this this works together and and one of the the big pieces that that i just frankly see differently than than my friends that that feel like breaching is is the answer i i work in a biological system uh trying to get potato plants to grow we've you know we've talked about it uh one, one of my mentors in this industry said you're playing chess with a potato um, and you, we, as humans want to say, if I do a B will happen. And that's simply not the reality in a biological system. And I, I think the, uh, the world at large got a little bit of lesson on this through the COVID pandemic. I mean, there's, there's lots of opinions about what was done right and what was done wrong through that. And I, you know, I certainly have my own, but, but what I would point out to everyone is that virus 
didn't care what we were doing. Uh, what we thought was going to happen was seldom what ended up happening, happening, regardless of how well-intentioned and how smart the people who were trying to, to control it were. And, and that is how it works in biology. That's how it works in farming. I think I've got it figured out. And boy, do I get humbled uh, almost every year when I found out, yeah, that didn't, that didn't work quite as, as good as you thought it would. And so when we point and say, you know, if we took these four dams out, the, the problem is solved. You know, salmon runs returned. I, I just fundamentally don't believe that. If, if I, you know, if, if that was the case, this, this would be a different discussion. Um, but there is just way too many things, in my view, that point to a biological system that involves hundreds of miles of river, fishing uh, impacts, urban impacts, and then the, the great unknown, or maybe that's not the right way to say it, but the ocean that is where, is where they spend most of their life. Um, and, and to boil that all in and say, yep, these, if these four dams weren't there, we, we did it, it would all be fixed. I, I just, I just find that, uh, a naive, uh, view, um, because it, it doesn't respect the realities of biological systems where it, it's just too many, there's too many factors involved here to, to point at just one. I, I think that that's a really important point to, to be made. And, um, I, I certainly would have to agree with you as well. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see this sort of topic be looked at as a, a very black and white topic. You know, it's, um, I would describe it as very high contrast and it would be ideal if we could discuss uh, you know, maybe the subject of salmon recovery, of managing the hydro system, of, of balancing those two priorities, and maybe a more low contrast setting where, um, you know, things aren't such extremes, right? But it is treated as though it's the, the silver bullet to uh, salmon recovery in the Northwest. And, um, you know, it's, it is kind of funny to think about that just in terms of how many different river systems, you know, like you brought, you brought up the Elwha, for example, um, you know, if we breach the lower Snake River dams, we certainly don't do anything for the fish that return to that river or any of the other neighboring rivers, right? So, um, yeah, it's, you know, there is like the advocacy component of it, the, the side of it of, you know, being in, in one lane or the other, but there's also just sort of the, the realities of it as well. And I think that it's fair to, to discuss those and, um, you know, it just, like I said, it kind of comes back to that, you know, there's the people that are on the extremes, right? And then there's sort of the middle of, well, you know, what is the the reality of the situation? And one thing we've talked a lot about on this podcast as a whole is um, the comparison between the known impacts of dam breaching and then the unknown impacts of, you know, how it may or may not play out in that biological system. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but I, I just, I just think it's worth reiterating, you know, in biological systems, there are not solutions, there are trade-offs. And, and so to me, as we look at this, and again, I, I appreciate there, there are 
people on both sides of this issue. And, and that panel I was on, you mentioned with, with Governor Inslee's uh, first study, that I believe there was a lot of people who were uh, trying to look at, okay, what are the trade-offs here? Um, if you look at, at the EIS, um, you know, I, I think those documents get dismissed way too quickly. Yeah, the environmentalist groups in a in a big document found one or two, you know, found a couple things to sue on and get a stay, and we act like the whole document's garbage because of that. There's there's some good work in that 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 talks about the trade-offs, and and that's really what we've got to decide, uh, in my view, as a as as a group, is what what trade-offs are worth it. Yeah. A, a story I've started to tell, you know, I have eight kids. I have a big family. And as you can imagine, with with eight kids, uh, disagreements happen and uh, uh, exciting, exciting moments happen. And, and often the child that's ultimately gets in trouble is, is quick in their explanation to start talking about all the bad things that one of the other children did. And, and my comment back to that is always bad behavior does not justify bad behavior. And, and as I was thinking about it uh, a few weeks ago, I thought, you know, I, I think there's some, some application of, of what's happening there. Again, because that's human nature, right? We think, hey, I was mistreated. I'm going to, so I'm okay mistreating others. And, and you look at this, this the history of, of all that's happened, uh, you know, in the Northwest with rivers and and there is some, there are some not good things that happened. Hundred percent agree. Um, when we look at fishing, when we look at the tribes, when we look at you know some, if we could go back and and change some of those decisions, I think all of us would. But sometimes it feels like, hey, because that bad behavior happened, let's let's do something now that would be very harmful to a lot of other people that that had nothing to do with that. The, you know, those things that happened in the past. And so I just, I just hope that the, the crowd that, that looks at it that way is, is minimized. And those that want to look at the whole and the trade-offs are, are, are able to, to carry the dialogue. Certainly. And, and there is a lot of working together that, that needs to be done on a lot of different areas of, you know, not just salmon or, or, energy or, or any of that, but just, you know, the entire, the entire region and our goals as a whole. Um, and within that too, there's also, I think a, a discussion that's worth having about the climate policies that have implications, not just for our space and energy, but also for farming. And, you know, at the same time that we're discussing things like dam removal and, and the potential impacts of that, we're also making some other big changes and shifts that, you know, have implications, both negative and positive and, or, you know, just require change to take place. So, um, you know, from the agriculture side of things, what are some of the, the issues that you're working through in terms of, you know, sustainability and carbon footprint and things like that? And what challenges and opportunities do those policies present? Yeah, that's uh, there, boy. There's a there's a lot uh, to that question. So let me let me hit on a first couple things that come to mind and, and see if it it gets there. So one of the 
one of the first things that I like to remind people, um, I grow a lot of plants and the number one food for plants is CO2. Um, uh, living things are the best users that we have of, of CO2, specifically the, the plant, you know, we're, we're putting out the CO2 and they're, they're taking it back in. And so um, when we think about carbon solutions, let's not forget the plants. Um, when we look at, um, and, and this is something that I try to communicate whenever I get the opportunity, um, we've, we've talked about how important grid reliability is to us. Our state is very focused on reducing carbon. Uh, that is that is where our political leaders are and, and have put some very aggressive policies into place uh, along those lines. Um, if, if you're going to do those things, then you need clean energy. We, we've got to keep the clean energy part of it. And so, again, stepping back and making sure we're thinking about the do we have the solution for keeping uh, the power going as we try to transition from fossil fuels to more electrification, but then, you know, on another front, talk about removing uh, a renewable, uh, clean source of energy. And we look at our friends in California, we look at Texas, uh, both who have recently went through times where they've found out in painful ways that they went too fast. They weren't ready. Uh, and, and that had devastating consequences on, on their states uh, and on, on an individual lives. Um, so I hope uh, as a state, we can keep those two things balanced because as we've talked about, it, it could be devastating for agriculture. Um, the, the other, you know, the other first thing that, that comes to mind is when you look at, again, food production, a lot of California, a lot of people don't realize this, California is the number one agriculture state in the United States. There's a lot of agriculture in California. But as we're seeing this year, they're having a great snowpack and, and hopefully uh, their drought woes are certainly going to be better this year. But um the reality of California is water scarcity is driving many crops to the Northwest. I'm now growing carrots that used to be grown in California. I'm knowing now growing onions on my farm that used to be grown in California. And so having a place with reliable water that can produce these, these products and, and be a replacement for some, some areas of the country that, that are are having challenges that I'm I'm not sure that there's a long term answer to is is a really important thing I think for for the whole world. You know, in discussing this, it sort of makes me think that as we talk about the biological systems of the crops you grow, and we we think about the biological systems of the salmon, whether it's the the CO two component or the the crop component, um, the farms that are in question, you know, the, the farms that you work on are really part of our biological system. And so, you know, there's something to be said for, uh, ensuring that that part of our biological system doesn't experience some 
you know, hiccups or uh, changes that could, you know, disrupt what we've come to know and rely on. And we understand biological systems are fragile, Um, uh, whether it's our human body or, or the, the, the salmon's runs, the, the agriculture, you know, like any of them um, can, are great, can be greatly impacted uh, by things that happen. And so, you know, it's, it's fragile systems. We have to be careful and and be deliberate. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's easy in a modern world to maybe forget that we are just as much uh, at the will of that as anything else around us. (laughs) So it's a, it's a good, important reminder. Um, You know, we're really, uh, I think we're, you know, we've covered a lot today and we've had a lot of good discussion and, and covered a lot of topics. Are there any messages that you particularly want to make sure to leave with our listeners after this episode of the podcast? Anything that, um, you know, a key takeaways from, from today's discussion that you hope people will have? Um, you know, I, I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. I, I hope I've represented well some of the challenges that that are a reality for irrigated agriculture and and hopefully shown um you know some importance it's that it that it is things that that matter and you know in in this political environment that our nation's in right now where um we very much get get pushed in you know we got we try to get pushed into into separate corners and, and things. Um, I, I just, to me, the, the chance to listen to other people and, and understand their point of view, uh, changes yours. And it, it certainly has for me on this issue as I, as I talk to others and listen to their, their point of view. Again, it, I, I still have my opinions, but, but I find out, Hey, well, there's some things that I didn't realize and that I didn't understand, and and anyway, hopefully, hopefully, people are willing to to listen to to my side and and my perspective, and 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 I, and I feel like some have, and and that helps. Versus what unfortunately happens sometimes is they find a political ally, and and find a way to subvert. The, the system and and get their way and and it becomes a win uh i've got to win and you're going to lose and i i just ultimately don't think it has to be that way yeah yeah i think that's a really a really important note particularly in in this discussion that you know no matter where you do line up um we need to ultimately find a way to to work through it together and that does really tie into kind of where we we always conclude on uh, this podcast, so I know that you brought up some of our uh, some of our other guests. Have you listened to some other episodes of Dam before? I have. I've listened. I listened to all your episodes. I all was right, trying so. to prepare. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't know you'd have for me. You know, you know what's coming then. So, um, do you have any uh, any good advice that you want to leave our listeners with at the end of this one? Maybe maybe it's about listening, um, but it could be about anything really. My children are all rolling their eyes right now, Austin. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you ask him for advice? (laughs) Um, You know, um, I I guess what I would say on 
I, I have a scripture that I put on the bottom of, of all my emails. And it, it says, oh, be wise. What more can I say? And obviously wisdom, you know, that that can mean a lot of things. But but to me, uh, it comes back to, again, um, uh, you know, so, some of the things that I already mentioned in the sense of we we can we can we can decide to um not you know i i we got to have a win-lose environment and and i'm competitive and i can get in that mindset myself for sure but when we're dealing with with each other uh most of the time that's not that's not the reality um and so when we step back look at the big picture look at the trade-offs and and really um you know, are able to to weigh that out. We we often find ways that we can both win, and that's anyway that that's the way I try to my live my life. Let's let's find ways that we all win. That's great. That really is, and I think that uh, whether that applies to what we talked about today or, or really anything else, that's a pretty good approach to take. So, I appreciate it, and I, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a a really insightful discussion, and um just thinking back on it already, the amount of ground that we were able to cover during this and the different things we were able to touch on. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a, a real wealth of information for our listeners and, um, you're our first agricultural guest as well. So I really hope that, uh, you know, we set, we set the stage pretty well. And, um, and I think the bar has also been set really high on this. So I uh, really appreciate your time. I, I appreciate the conversation and uh, yeah, uh, hope, hopefully you, you've, you've had a lot of smart people on. I hope I don't bring it down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the case at all. I think, uh, I think you've only brought it up more and, and really added um, something to it that uh, we desperately needed and, and I'm really excited that we have. So um, yeah, thank you. Thank you sincerely for being on today. Thanks, Austin. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of DAM as much as I enjoyed recording it. We were able to cover a lot of ground during that time, and the kind of knowledge and insight that Blaine was able to share with us today are the product of the lifetime he spent in farming, and really can only be gained through a lifetime spent in farming. It's exactly the kind of knowledge and insight that we want to share with the world through this podcast. So, it's always a good day when I can confidently say, hey, we achieved exactly that when we wrap up and shut off the mics. And there's a lot more of that knowledge and insight headed your way in the upcoming episodes we're cooking up here at River Partners HQ. If you didn't know, that's your hint to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss out on future releases, which arrive every other Friday. Not only that, we want to hear what knowledge and insight you received from today's podcast. You can do that by leaving us a review on the same listening platform, and your positive reviews are essential to helping us grow and expand our audience. Now, if you're all caught up on episodes of DAM and you just can't satisfy your craving for more hydropower in your life, you can always find us on social media at NW River Partners, and you can head to our website, nwriverpartners.org. Until next time, see ya!